experiences of the physical body and specifically experiences of pain and the physical body are central to how we should think about the historical subject. The violence of colonial economy and specifically colonial labor was made manifest on the bodies of laborers. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. My name is Edna Bonom, and I'm joined by Professor Jennifer Durr, who is a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She is the recipient of many grants, and her upcoming book, The Live Now, will be available online shortly. It explores nature, constructions, and experiences along the Nile River in Egypt between the 19th and 20th centuries. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Edna. We're happy to um, have you here on the show. And I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So we're going to mostly talk about your book, mostly because it's very much an intervention in the historiography of Egypt. And it provides us uh, with a kind of corrective to information about the Nile River, engineers, and technocrats during the colonial period in Egypt. So you begin at the turn of the 20th century in 1902 in Shala in Upper Egypt, and you bring us to the Aswan Dam, a tested site in which modern Egyptian history uh, has placed uh, state expropriation and Nubian dispossession. Why do you bring us here? Um, I think that's a great question. And the answer, there are several different answers to that question. I would say, that first of all, the object of analysis that lies at the center of the book is an object that I refer to as the perennial Nile River. So the argument is that beginning in really the 1820s, but stretching through the current moment, the Nile River was reconstructed through practices of perennial irrigation. And when we think about that reconstruction, the point of reference for many people, especially because of Tim Mitchell's work, is the construction of the 1902 Aswan Dam. Um, and indeed, there is a significant amount of work in the book about the 1902 Aswan Dam. And so in a certain sense, I wanted to start at the point of reference that people would associate with a particular construction of the Nile as a way of beginning that story. But I also wanted to start with this question of the Nubian displacement because I would argue that in many ways in the historiography of Egypt during the 19th and the 20th centuries, the Nubians are dealt with as a kind of population apart from the mainstream story of colonial economy and environmental change during this period. Um, most people think about the Nubian displacement that was associated with the Aswan High Dam because it was in many ways the end of historical northern Nubia, um, at least as it existed during the middle of the 20th century. But one of my arguments in the book is an argument for the construction of subjectivity through our encounters with the material world, and in this case, the environments around the Nile River. And so I begin the book with the Nubian displacement both to point to the fact that this is a displacement that begins at the turn of the century and not indeed in the 1960s, but also as a way of writing the Nubian population back into the history of modern Egypt and thinking through the ways in which that story is reflective of a broader story about the material formation of subjectivity 
under colonial economy in Egypt. So you mentioned Timothy Mitchell's work um, in many ways. Uh, you also touch upon questions around labor and particularly agricultural laborers in Egypt uh, during this period. To what extent are you also in conversation with the works of Joe Biden, Zachary Lachman, um, or even Lila Boulagold and um, gender and how that operates or features into this text? I think I am, at least in my own mind, um, in active conversation with those interventions. Um, so it is, I was trained by Joel Bainan um, as a labor historian, and so that is always fresh in my mind. But one of the questions that framed the doing of the research for the book was this question of, you know, most of the historia- most of the historiography of labor in Egypt has concentrated on urban and to a large extent industrial labors. Much of that has to do with what the source base looks like that looks like. Some of that also has to do with a particular imagination of labor and subjectivity that was active when, you know, labor historians really first started to do work in the Middle East. And the question that animated some of my work was this question of what was the significance of labor as a physical process? How was labor environmentally situated? And how did experiences of labor change as the environment itself changed? And so certainly while I come at it from a very different angle than other labor historians of the Middle East, these questions of labor and what the subjectivity of laborers was and how that was shaped was certainly central to how I thought about the project. So you mentioned how some of the historiography with respect to labor focuses on uh, mostly urban experiences. I would say uh, Cairo and Alexandria being prominent ones um, and then port cities like uh, Port Said and uh, Suez Canal also feature into this. Uh, To what extent Uh, Does agricultural labor, what you're looking at, differ from the rise of industrial manufacturer laborers um, in this particular period? That is a great question. It is also a complicated question to answer in many ways. So the first argument that I would make about this question of labor, and specifically within a broader framework of colonial economy, is that, you know, in some ways, the period in which I situate my book is the most crowded period of Egyptian history, right? This is a this is a well-developed historiography, much of which conter- concerns the production of cotton and the social relations of the Egyptian countryside. Um, and, you know, among those, labor certainly factors into those social relations. Now, I don't see my work in any way as upending that body of historiography, but I would argue that there are many questions about the experiences of colonial economy that go unanswered um, in that body of literature. So cotton, as I point out in the book, was not the only crop of colonial economy. Um, Crops like sugarcane and specifically maize were also associated with the environments of the perennial Nile, and that had dramatic effects for rural populations. On top of that, if we think about these kinds of classic histories of colonial economy as histories that are rooted in agricultural production, I would argue that agrarian history is by its very nature environmental history. And that in writing the history of colonial economy, we need to be 
particularly attentive to questions of the environment and experiences of the material world. Now, in thinking about what agricultural labor looked like, sort of in, when we think about that um, in comparison to industrial labor, one of the first observations that I would make is that many individuals doubled as agricultural and industrial laborers. So some of the kinds of classic industries that labor historians have looked at in Egypt, you know, textile production, cigarette rolling, some of these laborers were people who had made the journey to cities like Cairo and Alexandria and the cities of the Delta to work in industry. Um, many of those laborers suffered from the normative constructions of the body that I outline in the book, and specifically infection with schistosomiasis and hookworm because they came from rural places. And on top of that, in other contexts, so there's a chapter in the book about the sugarcane economy that exists in central and southern Egypt. And one of the defining features of sugarcane production is because cane loses its sucrose content really quickly after it's cut, sugar mills are located in close proximity to sugar fields. And so what we see is that for individuals who labored over sugarcane, um, the distinction between agricultural and industrial labor was not so clear because oftentimes people doubled as agricultural and industrial laborers. Sort of the final thing that I would say about that question is that central to my argument about subjectivity is an argument that experiences of the physical body and specifically experiences of pain and the physical body are central to how we should think about the historical subject. Um, this is a difficult question oftentimes to answer from the archives and for people who work in the history of medicine um, this is clear because people don't often talk about their bodies um, to state archives. And so as historians, we need to think about different ways of approaching that question. But in both agricultural and industrial labor contexts, these very physical experiences of labor and experiences of laboring pain, whether that came through physical work, through the scarring of the body, or through these experiences um, of environmental situatedness and what that means for the prevalence of disease, I think that while my specific focus is agricultural labor and this kind of hybrid agricultural industrial labor, I would also make a larger argument about labor history and the kinds of questions that we as historians should be attentive to. So thank you for that explanation. Um, I have a question related to that, specifically on this hybridization of labor, especially as it relates to embodiment. Um, in chapter four of your book, you pay uh, close attention to rural workers uh, who live along the Nile River, and specifically um, how um, that relates to the construction of the, quote, normative Egyptian body. Can you explain um, how colonialism or other um, factors racialized the Egyptian body, especially as people were negotiating with um, their uh, positionality between these agricultural industrial um, hybrid sectors? Absolutely. So there are in the fourth and fifth chapters of the book, I focus on the prevalence of mostly parasitic diseases. So I look at the history of schistosomiasis, which is referred to as bilharzia in Egypt and in other contexts. Um, so schistosomiasis, hookworm infection, and also 
a disease called pellagra, which is caused by nutritional deficiency. So in these chapters of the book, well, the first observation that I would make is that for in almost every writing of the history of schistosomiasis in Egyptian history, one of the first observations that is made about schistosomiasis is that it is ancient and it is endemic within Egypt. And this question of endemicity and what it means for something to be endemic, this was one of the questions that shaped the ways in which I approached the subject matter of those chapters. So in chapter four, I trace a story in which both the prevalence of schistosomiasis and hookworm um, become much much higher as a result of um, the changed environment of the perennial Nile River, but also the changed labor patterns and specifically what it meant to labor in irrigation canals and to labor year round. And so the argument that I make is through looking at the historical evidence of labor and through looking at um, you know statistical evidence that we have from la later periods, one of the things that we see is that while a disease like schistosomiasis certainly is endemic in Egypt and the sense that, you know, we have evidence from ancient Egyptian mummies that it has been in Egypt for thousands of years, what it meant to suffer from the disease and how many people suffered from the disease changed dramatically with the introduction of perennial irrigation. And that was, so, you know, if we look at the statistics, we can see that by the 1930s, when scientists started to do comparisons between regions of Egypt that had access to perennial irrigation and regions that still practice basin irrigation, what we see is that in regions that practiced basin irrigation, the statistics of schistosomiasis infection would be somewhere around 5%. Whereas in those with perennial irrigation, that statistic averaged around 60%, but could be as high as 90%. The other thing that we see in the early 20th century is that the experience of these diseases was dramatically transformed because people became infected repeatedly and that produced new symptoms of disease. And so, for example, um, one of the symptoms that appeared in early 20th century Egypt with complicated and repeat schistosomiasis infection was that people developed sort of massive growths on their their penises, their vaginas, their recta. Um, and these were symptoms that had not been seen before historically and that we don't generally see in the present day. It was interesting, I didn't include those photographs in the book and I really struggled with that because on the one hand, they illustrate the deep and structural violence of colonial economy for rural populations. On the other hand, these were photographs that were taken by usually white European doctors of colonial patients, and so the questions of consent and display are problematic at best. Um, so they're not in the book, but I do also want to talk about them because they really show the kinds of ways in which the violence of colonial economy and specifically colonial labor was made manifest on the bodies of laborers. Um, I think something else that is really important to think about, especially when we think about the centrality of questions of race to the colonial medical project, is that this concept of endemicity functioned very much in 
the late 19th and early 20th century, and I would argue continues to function in a contemporary context to racialize the bodies of populations um, in the sense that colonial medical practitioners would use these diseases and specifically the prevalence of parasites in the bodies of Egyptians to think about the physical differences that inherently marked the bodies of Egyptians. And so there is very much a project of making biological race that happens in colonial medicine in the early 20th century that in the case of Egypt is specifically tied to parasites and the prevalence of parasitic diseases. And so, you know, one of the projects of the book is to show specifically how agricultural labor, and I want to emphasize that while rural populations writ large were susceptible to the diseases of perennial irrigation, um, male laborers of laboring age tended to have the worst symptoms of those diseases and the sort of highest prevalence. And so um, I, even though rural populations writ large suffered from these diseases, I do think that the, the act of labor produced specifically severe manifestations of disease. And so, you know, one of the projects of the book is to show how labor and specifically the labor of colonial economy was implicated in the making of new normative physical constructions of the body and also how those normative constructions of the body became central to the ways in which the tropical medicine project and colonial medical practitioners thought about questions of race in Egypt specifically. Thank you for that uh, explanation. I think one of the things that uh, your text does to help to uh, deepen in the richness of history of medicine in the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire more broadly is that it allows us to think about the questions of what is an endemic disease, similar to uh, not just my research, but the research of Alan Mikhail and others who've looked at plague and cholera and how those um, epidemics have been seen as um, specifically endemic uh, in the Middle East and North Africa more broadly. And historians, of course, challenge this as well as uh, uh, other groups. Uh, I want to turn to um, something that you bring up in on your chapter on decolonizing irrigation systems. You invite us into a space where we can think about the history of irrigation uh, engineering in Egypt and how it could potentially uh, be decolonized with respect to knowledge and science. How do you understand this um, phenomenon of decolonization, especially as a term that is uh, taking up popularity uh, in uh, mainstream media, in various activist circles, even uh, in uh, uh, Europe where ideas about reparations uh, come up? Uh, so uh, can you elaborate on the decolonial practice um, as you understand it in your book? So thank you for that question. I, I now realize also that that question is a better question than I answered in the chapter, but I'm going to talk about some of the ways in which I thought about what it meant to decolonize irrigation engineering. So part of the project of the book is to think through the ways in which expert knowledge and also experts themselves are made through their material interactions with the environment itself. Right. So I'm very much trying to produce a kind of relational history of both medical and engineering expertise as it relates 
to this particular environmental construction that I center in the book. The first observation that I will make, and I should say the book begins by me revisiting the history of irrigation engineering in Egypt, which is a history that is still, while the historiography of irrigation engineering tends to be of a slightly earlier period than the one that we're in now, many of its assumptions persist. And so I would I would argue that there are two kinds of strands that exist, both in the early 20th century, but also in our contemporary scholarly moment. And those strands are when people think about the construction of the Nile River and specifically the construction of Khazen Aswan or the 1902 Aswan Dam, that is a story that in the English language historiography is told very much from the perspective of these expert British irrigation engineers that landed in Egypt, um, revolutionized its irrigation system, built dams and barrages, and fueled cotton production. Now, there is obviously an Egyptian counter narrative to that story, and that's a counter narrative that begins as early as the 19 teens, but really sort of gathers steam in the 1930s in the interwar period, in which Egyptian engineers, probably the most famous of whom is Amin Sami, begin to write the history of the Nile River in a very self conscious way as a history that was not built through British sort of expertise. Um, in a certain sense, that is a project to reclaim the Nile, but that is also not a project that thinks more carefully about the entanglements of knowledge in the environment itself and the history of engineering as a global field of expertise. So what I do in the first chapter of the book is to revisit the history of civil engineering in um, Britain and in Egypt, and to think about the ways in which the engineer comes into being, and it happens in both places, really in the 19th century, as a category of expert. And one of the observations that I would make is that there is a much more formal history of engineering education in Egypt, and unsurprisingly, a history that's associated with the educational institutions of the Mehmed Ali period. But there's a much more formal history of engineering in Egypt than that that existed in the British Empire. And so in this chapter, I make the argument that when British irrigation engineers, most of whom began their work in India, when they came to Egypt, there was a kind of crisis in the field because they began work at a public works ministry that was staffed by Egyptian engineers, many of whom had more formal training as engineers than these British engineers. Um, on top of that, they did not; these British engineers did not possess the vernacular forms of knowledge that helped to manage the Nile River and had for a very, very long time. And so one of the things that I do in this chapter is to rethink the early years of irrigation engineering during the colonial period and specifically during the 1880s and the 1890s and to think about the strategies of performing expertise that British irrigation engineers adopted um, in order to stake a claim to the Nile River. And so central to this 
is the ways in which the authorship of texts for both British engineers and Egyptian engineers functioned as a means of staking a claim to the Nile, performing expertise, and ensuring that that expertise traveled beyond the immediate context of Egypt. Um, the other argument that I make is that during these early years of the occupation, another strategy that was deployed by British irrigation engineers was while they developed their expertise in Egyptian irrigation, um, there was an active process, and this we know from other fields, of divesting resources from Egyptian educational institutions, especially elite institutions like the medical school at Qasr al-Aini, um, and that included the School of Engineering. And so there is a process by which, while British engineers look for ways to produce their own expertise, they are actively look also looking for ways to ensure that expert Egyptian engineers are not competing with them for control over the Nile River. Now, this question, when I approached this chapter, I thought about the question of the decolonial as a practice through which I would both contextualize and make material how knowledge is produced, how we perceive and perform knowledge, and how that knowledge travels globally. And so I was very much looking with a more critical eye at the ways in which um, colonial expertise has continued to hold sway in certain fields, and particularly in the field of civil engineering. I think there's a more complicated question that's attached to that, because the book that I write and the story of the Nile River, that is a story and a history that continues to frame water conflicts in contemporary Egypt. And so if you think about the sort of ongoing controversy about the construction of the Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia, you know, part of that controversy is situated in the water practices that have existed in Egypt since the early 20th century, in which Egypt has depended on a particular share of the waters of the Nile River. Um, that particular share has its roots deep in the colonial period and specifically in the 1929 Nile Waters Agreement. Um, and the practices of agriculture and daily life that surround the Nile are not, for the most part, produced by ideas of scarcity and sustainability. They are produced by a kind of colonial water practice that, while that has continued to evolve, obviously, over the course of the 20th century, um, you know, in very tangible ways, Egypt is still wrestling with the legacies of colonial water management policies. And so, and, and, and I would argue the forms of engineering knowledge that they help to produce. So, you know, in, in the later chapters of the book, I look at the ways in which Egyptian irrigation engineering during the interwar period continued to be shaped by a Nile River that was built under the British and the forms of knowledge that supported that Nile River. And so I think when we think about the decolonial, I think when you ask the question, the challenge that you were referring to has to do with the ways in which historians have started to think in much more sort of insightful ways about the fact that 
the, the sense of the decolonial is not simply associated with a political trajectory and a political timeline. And I, I think I do something related in the book, which is to think about what are we talking about when we talk about the terms colonial and decolonial, and what are the persistent and material legacies of those terms. And those are legacies that do not neatly correlate with the political timeline of Egypt during the 20th century. Thank you for that um, insightful response. I wanted to ask, or at least expand upon um, something you bring up, which is that technocrats and engineers and mostly public work officials um, in your text are doing the work of um, producing a new form of knowledge. And in some cases, um, there's this co-constitutive knowledge between British officials, Egyptian officials, but then it extends beyond, um, or at least you alluded to, a kind of trans-regional context by which um, uh, the Nile River and the expertise that is being produced uh, by Egyptians is also affecting people in, I can imagine, Sudan and further um, uh, south in uh, Ethiopia. But then outside of that, um, in other, um, at the time, British uh, colonies like British India, uh, can you um, expand upon the ways in which these um, global networks of experts um, who were part of these um, former colonial contexts were able to um, exchange information, um, were able to work um, simultaneously or next to each other uh, and contribute to a new form of knowledge? Sure. So with respect to civil engineering, one of one of the themes of that history is that um, as as with other aspects of Egypt's colonial history, what happens to the Nile River is tightly connected to the history of British irrigation engineering in India. And so, first of all, there, there's, there are the very direct ways in which British engineers travel from India to Egypt and then after what they argue are their great successes in Egypt, end up traveling the globe, right? So William Wilcox, who in many ways is the most famous of these engineers, works on irrigation projects in Iraq. He works on irrigation projects in South Africa. Um, he goes to Canada and the United States. And in many ways, we see that the kinds of irrigation systems that were constructed in Egypt and in India end up in places as far flung as California. So there are commonalities that link California's Central Valley to the developments in irrigation engineering that we see in the realms of the British Empire. Um, there are similar observations that I would make about the field of tropical medicine. So I think, you know, one of the things that is particular about Egypt's history is that while the British colonial influence lingers during the interwar period um, in ways that are well established, the interwar period and also presented tremendous opportunities for Egyptian technocrats to, um, you know, ascend within the ministries of the Egyptian state and to begin to break into fields of knowledge that were still very much associated with the colonial world. And so within the field of tropical medicine, because Egypt shakes off part of its colonial influence relatively earlier than 
in other contexts in the Middle East and in Africa and in South Asia for that matter, one of the things that we see is that this field of specifically endemic disease gives Egyptian physicians and scientists a means of breaking into um, fields of expertise that are very much dominated by European and American physicians. And so, you know, in Egypt in the 1920s and the 1930s, this is a period in which the Rockefeller Foundation becomes active in Egypt. And there is, as I talk about in the book, there's an active contestation on the ground between Egyptian physicians and scientists who are looking to um, use Egypt and its particular landscapes of disease as a realm of demonstrating their knowledge and are still being thwarted at every turn by the white scientists that are associated with organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, That said, Egyptian physicians do begin to leave Egypt during this period, and they do they do have limited opportunities to make their impact felt in other regions of the globe. So one of the physicians that I talk about at length in the book is an individual named Muhammad Khalil. So Muhammad Khalil was trained in Egypt. When he found his opportunities were somewhat limited in Egypt, he left and he did a certificate at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And before he returned to Egypt to lead their endemic disease section during the 1920s and the 1930s, um, Khalil also worked in other parts of the globe doing schistosomiasis research. And so there is a strand that emerges in the book, and it's a strand that I'm very much interested in pursuing in my second project, which is that, you know, what is the history of science in and I'll use this term with some hesitation, but what is the what is the post-colonial history of science in the global south? And I think within the field of the history of science, one of the ways in which that question has been answered is that historians have looked to quote-unquote indigenous forms of knowledge to counteract a history of science that is dominated by, you know, questions of, let's say, biomedicine within the history of medicine in the 19th and the 20th century. And I think that while that work is tremendously valuable, um, it also is problematic in the Middle East because the Middle East and Europe have very linked histories of medicine, um, both in the ways in which they thought about the body and the significance of the Hippocratic Galenic tradition, but also, you know, there were European doctors that were very, very active in the Middle East during the Ottoman period, and that includes the 19th century. These were linked intellectual histories, and so I think that, you know, one of the questions that I want to think about is is not only how do you know rural Egyptian populations imagine the body and practice medicine in ways that are not linked to biomedical practices, but also what are the relatively more formalized histories of science that have marked the Middle East and the Global South more broadly during the 20th century, and how do we place those things in conversation with one another? Because I think there is a real danger to always, I think there's a danger of sort of reifying this category of the indigenous, and one of one of the dangers that is associated with that is the danger of not taking expertise as it existed outside of Europe, but still in relatively more formal context, seriously. 
it seems as if what you're pointing to is that the transfer, circulation, repackaging of medical and scientific knowledge between what is now called Europe and the Middle East and North Africa was an ongoing process. And this is something that, of course, people, uh, scholars like George uh, Saliba and others have discussed from the early Islamic period to uh, what you alluded to in, in the 19th century context, uh, especially within Egypt, Muhammad Ali with the consultation of uh, Antoine Bartholomew or Kaat Bey helped to establish uh, the modern Egyptian hospital, um, also known as Asal Aini. And this is a uh, works that have been done by various um, scholars of Egypt have looked at this um, early 19th century period and the kind of um, uh, syncretic, um, braided uh, knowledge and science uh, during this period and that ideas about what is often labeled traditional or indigenous medicine uh, is not some static uh, thing, but is often a kind of parallel, co-constitutive um, forms and practices. Um, I want to um, uh, move towards something that you spoke about in the beginning, uh, but could help us um, uh, figure out the significance of this book, and particularly in this period, which is uh, the question around environmental history and environmental histories of the Middle East, um, uh, especially as we think about um, uh, the kind of surge of materials on the Anthropocene, on climate change today, and, and even um, uh, kind of drought and irrigation and what that looks like um, in the contemporary context. Uh, what what role does your book have in kind of um, reformulating the field of environmental history within the Middle East? I think I have a few different answers to that. Um, the first answer that I would offer is that I think that within the field of environmental history more broadly, and I'm thinking outside of the Middle East, there has been a tendency to think about the history of the environment as disconnected from questions of political history, questions of the history of capitalism and political economy, and questions of medical history. So, you know, one of the complexities when I describe my work is I say, well, I work at the intersection of political economy, environmental history, the history of medicine, and the history of science. And that those are those are many different things, but I would argue that those are histories that should be thought of in relation to one another because they are histories that are lived and connected to one another. So I think that one contribution that I'm trying to make with this book is to bring the field of environmental history, to bring it back into the center of these other fields. And so, you know, in some ways I don't think about myself as an environmental historian. I think about myself as a historian who takes questions of relational materiality seriously. I just happened to work on a colonial economic context in which those questions of material relations are situated in the environments of agriculture and the Nile River. And so, you know, one argument that I would make for environmental history is that just as we cannot think the history of the environment outside of questions of the human body and questions of political economy, I think we also need to write the environment back into the fields of political economy and the history of medicine. And so in some ways, I have, in some ways, my work speaks most directly to the work of other 
scholars who are working between the history of medicine and environmental history. So those include people like Greg Mittman, Linda Nash, Michelle Murphy, who are all interested in these sort of interconnected contexts. But at the same time, I think that specifically within the history of the Middle East, the, the tradition of political economy is strong within the history of the Middle East. And I think that one of the exciting things within our field has been that there has been a resurgence of that tradition um, in the contemporary moment, and that scholars are doing really exciting new work on the history of political economy. I think my contribution to that is not to work outside of that field, but to argue that questions of embodiment and questions of environment are central to considerations of political economy. And so if anything, I think that my book is trying to bring together a set, a, a, a set of fields that oftentimes operate independently of one another and to make an argument that that intersection is not just important for the questions that I look at in my book, but is more broadly important for the ways that we think about the discipline of history. Thank you. I'm going to bring us to the last question, which is, you're currently a visiting fellow at the Max Planck Institute for History of Science, where I'm currently based, and I'm going to be participating in an upcoming uh, workshop that uh, I'm co-organizing on the power um, in medicine in the Middle East and thinking about it from a global perspective. How do you see um, this institute or the upcoming workshop as a site for exploring uh, some of these questions on um, uh, reshaping, reformulating, and sharpening the, the kind of discourse in history of medicine, history of the environment, and political history of the Middle East? That's a great question. And, and the first thing that I want to say is that um, I'm tremendously excited about the workshop in, in large part and in small part because until very recently, there has not been a group of scholars working on the history of medicine in the contemporary Middle East. And so I think, you know, just at the most superficial level, I think it will be an exciting opportunity for scholars to come together who are working on questions of science and medicine in more contemporary period. So I think that that work is more developed specifically in relation to the medieval period, but this is really a new field. And so I think it's a really exciting opportunity. Um, I am curious to see how scholars who in many ways have been trained in very different ways the, the kinds of questions that w they will raise at the conference and the differences that will exist among those questions. So I feel like I don't have, I don't yet have an idea as to what the conversations will look like, because I think that within Middle Eastern history, they, they very well might look different than they look in other in other area studies fields because of the particularities of the field. Um, I, at this conference, I'll be talking about my new project, which is, which I allude to in the conclusion, or I, I start, I begin to talk about in the conclusion to A Lived Nile. Um, so my new project is a history of the liver in 20th century Egypt through questions of public health and political economy. So what I am doing in this book project is to use the fact that 
the diseases that Egypt has struggled with most in the 20th century are diseases that have targeted the liver in particular. So one of those diseases has to do with the ways in which patterns of schistosomiasis infection change in the second half of the 20th century. Um, another piece of that story concerns the prevalence of hepatitis C in Egypt, which is a story that begins with the schistosomiasis treatment campaigns that start in the 1920s and stretch through the 1980s. And so, you know, one of the things I'm looking to do at this conference, and I'm, I'm early in this project, is to, my concern in my second book project, is to think about the ways in which bodies are made visible and become objects of knowledge, imagination, and medical and economic intervention during the 20th century in Egypt and the ways in which that shifts over time. So I'm interested in seeing how other scholars in the field are thinking about questions of power within the history of medicine, specifically as it's linked to other questions of political economy. We look forward to having you at the um, workshop and thank you so much for this conversation here in Berlin, Germany. Um, although we can't predict what the conversations will look like um, in April, uh, this will be a stimulating conversation and hopefully we can continue discussing some of the very important themes of your book related to agriculture, labor history, the environment, colonialism, and the sense of expertise. Um, again, this is uh, my name is Edna Bonhomme, and I was joined with Professor Jennifer Durr, who's an assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And we will have a bibliography available, as well as um, the link to how you can purchase the book, which is The Live Nile, um, and it will be available July 2019. Thank you. Thank you.